Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Here's Ken Levine. Every time I hear that introduction, I think to myself, my God, am I hosting the Oscars? Well, thank you, Randy Thomas. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast. I am Ken Levine. Well, how do you follow Kevin Smith? I mean, the last couple of weeks have been fantastic. I had Kevin Smith on the program, and I'll be very honest with you, I'm now at a point in this podcast where I'm trying to grow audience. And of course, having Kevin Smith, I certainly had a boost the last couple of weeks, and I know there's a lot of new people here. Please subscribe. And I'm figuring, okay, well, how do I follow that? I mean, do I come back with uh, an interview with my dentist for 25 minutes? I mean, you're all going to go away. So do I come back with a writer interview or somebody from baseball, maybe play an old radio tape? Finally, I decided, you know what? Fuck it. Just tell some stories because that's pretty much what I do. It's pretty much what is unique to this podcast. So for today, it's just going to be me. First, I want to talk about my directing career. Now, unlike Kevin Smith, I've never directed a movie I've done 65 episodes of half-hour television, but primarily they have been multi-camera, which means it's shot in front of a live studio audience. You have four cameras moving simultaneously, hopefully not crashing into each other. And during my tenure as a TV director, I've had uh, a number of encounters with actors, actors challenging me, that sort of thing. Uh, So we'll be talking about that. And then I want to get into my Airzots radio career and all of the times that I got fired as a disc jockey. And the truth is you cannot be in radio for any length of time without getting fired at least five, six, 14 times. Well, I got sacked on any number of occasions. And in some cases, I was able to go out in a blaze of glory. And I also have some other tales of comedy and revenge when it comes to getting fired in radio. So that's it. It's just me for this episode. So let's get it going. Hollywood and the Vine. One thing, when you are a freelance director, you are essentially like a substitute teacher because you go in on a show, and of course the cast all knows everybody and the crew is the same each week, and the only thing different is you. And what's very bizarre is it's like you go to work as a temp, say, in an office, except that you're the boss. <laughs> well, that's kind of what it's like when you're a sitcom TV director for hire. And one thing I noticed that sometimes the actors will try to test you a little bit because they don't know who you are and they're trying to feel you out to see whether or not you know what you're doing, whether or not you have a certain command. And I remember in particular the very first time that I directed Everybody Loves Raymond. It was an episode called Pet Cemetery. It is from season five if you want to race over to Netflix and watch it. But the plot of the episode was that one of Ray's kids had a gopher that died. And so they had a funeral for the gopher. 
and they were going to do the scene on the stage, but they had a backyard set, and they also wanted it to rain during the scene. So all kinds of rigging was set up so that we had a rain effect, and we did. We shot this in front of a live audience, 250 people, and we had our cast standing in the rain. So the first day that we rehearsed the scene, all of the rigging had already been set up, and so some of the crew people came up to me and said, do you want to see the rain effect during the rehearsal? And I said, no, no, there's no real reason to get everybody soaking wet on the first day of rehearsal. And usually what I do at the beginning of each scene is I have it pretty well blocked out where I want everyone to start. So in this case, I said, okay, I want Peter Boyle over here and then Doris Roberts next to him. Then I'll have Ray. Then I'll have Patty Heaton. I'll have Brad Garrett. And I'll have this kid here and that kid there. And I had the thing all set up. And Peter Boyle says, no, I don't want to stand over there. And he moved a couple of places over between like Brad and Patty and said, I, I want to stand here. And I said, well, Peter, it actually doesn't make sense for you to stand there because you have some private lines with Doris. And in order to deliver those lines, you're now saying them across Brad and across Ray. And he said, no, no, I still, I feel, I feel I belong here. And I said, yeah, but it's kind of bizarre because what you are saying to her, we don't want Ray to know, but of course Ray would hear it if you are talking across him. And he said, I, I, st I can make it work. Uh, this is where I want to stand. Clearly just testing me. So I said, okay, because I didn't want to get into it with the actor. I said, okay. And then I turned to the special effects guy and I said, change of plans. I want to do the rain effect but just over Peter. And Peter laughed, and then he moved back into the spot that I wanted him to stand originally, and then we were fine. Like I said, it was Peter Boyle just testing me. When I did Dharma and Greg, Susan Sullivan was on that show, and like I said, the actors will kind of feel you out the first day. Well, she was very direct. She took me aside. She put her arm around my shoulder and said, so who the fuck are you? And then when I told her my credits, she said, oh, okay, great. Well, welcome. Great to have you. Sometimes you can be intimidated by just the thought that you're going to be directing a certain actor. I directed a show called Pearl for CBS that starred Rhea Perlman, and Malcolm McDowell was one of the stars of that show. And I said to my friend, my God, I, I'm going to be directing Malcolm McDowell? My God, the man starred in Clockwork Orange for Stanley Kubrick. And he said, yeah, and he also starred in Caligula. And that made it a whole lot easier. When I directed Ted Danson on Becker, he had just completed a couple of days working on Saving Private Ryan. You might remember he's in one scene in that movie. So I said to him, how does it feel to be directed by Ken Levine and Steven Spielberg? He, of course, got a laugh out of that and said that Spielberg was a whole lot better. So what do you do in order to get the cast to be on board? I talked to Jerry Zachs, who is primarily a Broadway director. He currently has a little show called Hello, Dolly! that's playing on Broadway. But for a couple of years, he came out to California and tried his hand at directing sitcoms. In fact, I mentored him for a couple of weeks, teaching him camera blocking. So I said to Jerry, what do you do your first day to get the cast to like you? And he said, 
lead them to a joke. If you can find a way of getting them to get a laugh, then they'll go, oh, okay, this guy knows what he's doing, and then they're yours. So lead them to a joke. That said, it is easier to get performances, certainly comic performances, out of some actors as opposed to others. There are some like, well, I'm directing David Hyde Pierce. This guy is fantastic. I'm not giving this guy any acting notes, for Christ's sake. It's David Hyde Pierce. He's fantastic. Same with Ted Danson. Go up to Ted Danson and go, okay, look at Teddy. Let me show you how to make this funny. What am I, out of my mind? So if you have the luxury of having great actors to work with, it's a really easy job. However, sometimes the guest cast can be a little challenging. And I have had a number of instances where I have had to direct big athletes who guest starred. And let me tell you, Carl Malone, the mailman, fantastic basketball player, an absolute enemy of comedy. And I worked on a show called Brothers Keeper, and he was a guest And just to get him to read three lines, oh, my God, it took practically all afternoon, and he was still terrible. Again, great athlete. He could sure beat the crap out of me going one-on-one, but as an actor, oh. Terry Bradshaw was not much better, but Terry Bradshaw was Cary Grant compared to Mike Ditka. I worked with Mike Ditka on Becker and had to get him to be funny, and look, One thing comedy writers know is you don't want to place the comedy burden on an athlete because, by and large, they're going to kill you. The exception, I must say, however, was Kevin McHale when he was a member of the Boston Celtics and we used him on Cheers. And not only was he good, but he was so good that, A, we gave him more jokes and, B, we actually brought him back to do a second episode. And it was so weird for me because at the time, I was a huge Lakers fan. And this was during the 80s, the Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Showtime Lakers, and you had DJ and all those great Boston Celtics, those fantastic finals between the Lakers and the Celtics every year, it seemed like. And Kevin McHale was the sixth man, and Kevin McHale was the hated, the absolute hated Boston Celtic player, if you were a Laker fan. And yet, he could not have been a nicer guy. And I'll tell you what, all hatred goes away when a guy can get a laugh for you. And that was the case with Kevin McHale. Although, like I said, he really was a terrific guy. Most of the time I directed multi-camera shows that was shot in front of a live audience. But every so often I would get to go outdoors and do a single camera shot. And the very first time I got a chance to do that, it was my first and almost my last. This was on a show called Late Line that was on NBC. It starred now Senator Al Franken, and it was kind of a behind-the-scenes of a Nightline type of program. And the scene was that his character, who was a reporter on the show and kind of a dweeb, 
was going horseback riding with the big anchor who was played by Robert Foxworth. So I actually had a full day of like five or six outside shots to get. And this was going to be the first of the day. It was going to be this. And then we were going to go back to the Paramount lot. And I was going to shoot on the New York street and I was going to shoot somewhere else. But this was the first shot of the day. So it was all scoped out. We went out to Griffith Park, got there at about seven o'clock in the morning. And there was a couple of horses and Al Franken had never ridden a horse. So they were teaching him how to do it. And that was sort of a slow process. Meanwhile, I'm setting up my camera. It was basically going to be just one shot of the two of them riding along. And Robert, who had been in a lot of Westerns in his career. So he rode tall in the saddle. You know, he had his back straight up and he looked like he had been doing it a million years, like he was Glenn Ford or somebody. And of course, Al was very tentative and shaky on the horse. And that was what we wanted. It was very fun. So Bob gets on the horse and he's galloping around back and forth. Like I said, for him, this is nothing. And Al is clomping along and practically falling out of the saddle every other minute. It's how I kind of picture him. You know, I see him now on C-SPAN. He's wearing a nice suit and he's addressing Congress. And all I can think of is Al on this horse almost fallen off of his saddle. So we finally set up for the shot. We rehearsed it a couple of times, and now we're going to do the shot. We slate, and sound is ready, and I yell, action, and they come down the path, and they each have like a couple of lines. They say their lines, and just after they cross past the camera, out of the camera view, I hear a loud, ah! And we turn around, And Robert Foxworth is now hunched over his horse. Apparently, he had pulled something out in his back. But, I mean, he couldn't move. We couldn't get him off the horse. We had to call for the paramedics. The paramedics had to come. That was like another 15, 20 minutes. Meanwhile, you just picture him. He's just hanging on this horse. And finally, they arrive. And to get him off, it took like three people and they had to like put him on a board and then take him off to the hospital. It was now probably 1130. Fortunately, I got the shot, (laughs) you know, but uh, as he was being loaded into the ambulance, I did call out to him and and say, Bob, um, can we do one more insurance shot? He actually laughed. That's why I knew that he wasn't dead. So we get that one shot. Now we go back to Paramount and we have to film a fairly elaborate sequence on the New York Street. And it involved like five or six people. I remember Megan Price was there. And I think she was doing a stand-up for a TV news report and that there were people coming by and she had to interview people. Like I said, it was rather complex with people coming in and out. So we set up the scene. And I planned to do it about four or five times from different angles. And like I said, it was pretty complicated. So chances are it was going to take four or five takes just to get one to print. And the director of photography says, well, you know, you're not going to be able to match anything. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, there's a reason that we had this scene scheduled for like 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning and not noon. It's because the sun is now right overhead 
and the shadows are going to change drastically as opposed to 9 o'clock in the morning when they would stay pretty much the same. I said, so in other words, I have what, like one or two takes in order to get this? And he said, yeah. And of course, it took three takes. Then I had all of my other things. By the time I got done with that day, I was an absolute wreck. And I'm thinking, how do you do the invasion of Normandy in Saving Private Ryan? Maybe Steven Spielberg is a better director than me. And finally, I'll leave you with this one recollection, again, from the show Brothers Keeper. This was a show on ABC when they were doing that TGIF thing, shows that were basically geared towards kids. Well, this was a show starring Billy Ragsdale as a father, and he had a young son who was like about eight. And the problem is, when you have little kids in your cast, you can only use them for a certain amount of time They have to be away at school, and there's a special tutor, and they have to put in so many hours a day in the classroom. So I only got the kid for 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there, and then I would have him in the afternoon for the run-through. So a midget was hired to play his stand-in, and also I would rehearse with the midget, And then the midget would tell him the blocking and what he wanted him to do. And I tried to make it as easy as possible. I'm not going to say for this eight-year-old kid, okay, on this line you walk over here and then you go and you get a glass of water and then you cross up here and then you come back down, you sit at the table and then you realize, no, I forgot my sippy cup. And then you cross back to the microwave and then, no, it's just like, okay, you come into the room and you sit, that's it. So, We're doing a scene, and the gentleman who was the stand-in was very helpful in that he really acted out the part. This guy was probably 55, 60 years old, something like that. So we're rehearsing a scene one day, and a group of Japanese tourists come in and sit in the bleachers. This, by the way, was at Universal. And I don't think much of it, and especially at Universal, they would do that from time to time. They would troop in these VIP tours, and they would sit, and they would watch you rehearse for about 10, 15 minutes, and then they would leave. I was asked beforehand if that was okay. You know, there are some directors that don't want anybody on the set while they're working. I didn't give a crap, sure. I don't care. Let the tours come by. So this Japanese group is all sitting there, in the bleachers, and I'm not even paying attention to them. We're rehearsing a scene where the father, Billy Ragsdale, is scolding the child for some reason, and the kid is supposed to burst into tears and then run from the room. So here's what the Japanese tourists who can't speak English see. There is a middle-aged man yelling at an even older middle-aged midget, and at some point, the midget bursts into tears and runs out of the room. And to make matters worse, I'm the director, along with other cast members and other crew people standing around laughing at this. Well, they were just appalled. And you could just hear this angry murmur from the bleachers. And we all turned around and they all stood up and they glared at us and waved fingers at us and marched out. They didn't realize that that was a stand-in. That was one of my favorite comic moments. And I don't think Steven Spielberg could have handled it any better. Coming back with more right after this. (laughs) 
Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And I like to think it's because they advertise on this podcast. But the truth is, it is a great idea. You just go online, you pick out a menu selection, and there is a tremendous variety. And then they send the ingredients fresh to your door. You make the meal in less than an hour. It costs less than $10, and you have a delicious and healthy meal. It's very flexible. You can order as many or as few as you want. There are so many different recipes that the same recipe doesn't show up twice in any calendar year. It's called Blue Apron, and I want you to try it for free on me because that's the kind of guy I am. Okay, you get three free meals and free shipping, and all you have to do is go to blueapron.com and then type in slash Hollywood. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash Hollywood. You will love it, I guarantee. Blueapron.com slash Hollywood. Hollywood and Levine. I have talked fondly about radio over this podcast and my blog. And yeah, it really was an awful lot of fun to be in radio in the 1970s. But there were some downsides. And certainly one of them was the fact that there was absolutely zero job security. You bounced around the country and you generally got fired. I don't know any disc jockey, anybody in radio who had not been in the industry for any length of time, who doesn't have at least four firing stories. Stations would change formats all the time, or program directors would be ousted. Anytime a new rating book would come out, suddenly there was upheaval. And the stories of people getting fired are legendary. Remember there was one, Buzz Bennett was a program director, and he came into KCBQ San Diego. He spent a couple of days in a hotel room listening to all of the disc jockeys and taking notes, and then he walked into the station. There was a disc jockey meeting, and he said, whichever one of you is China Smith, come with me. That's the way he found out about it. The first time I got fired was from KMEN in San Bernardino. Now, I started there in 1973, and I was doing the all-night show, which I hated. And I was making $650 a month, you know, big, big radio money. And eventually the ratings came out, and the only time that my show was rated was in the 5 to 6 hour, and I got an 85 share. (laughs) <laughs> an 85 share. So right away, I was put on the 6 to midnight shift. And I was doing that for several months and quite happy. And then the station changed ownerships. And then a new program director came in. And the new program director didn't like my act, wanted to fire me, but actually wanted to get me to quit so that they wouldn't have to pay the unemployment insurance. So he called me into his office and he said, yeah, we're moving you back to midnight to 6. And I knew what was going on, and I said, listen, if you want to fire me, just fire me. And he said, no, 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 we want you on the station, but we're making some changes, and we'd like you to do midnight to 6. I said, really, don't do that, don't do that. And he said, see you tonight at midnight. I said, okay. So I left the station, and I went to a record store. When I was in high school, I used to work in a record store, so I had a pretty good idea of a wide variety of albums that were currently on the market. And I bought one in particular, brought it with me to the station that night, signed on the air at midnight for the first half hour, just played the format. I was a good boy. And then at 1230, 
I said, you know, a lot of stations now are playing albums. Albums are really the hot thing. So what I want to do now is play an album all the way through. And then I put this on the air. That, of course, is Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. Well, my hotline rang about two minutes later, and I just let it ring and let it ring and let the album continue to play. About 20 minutes later, I hear this car just scream into the parking lot, and the program director (laughs) gets out, marches into the booth, yells, you're fired, and that was it. The next time I got fired was KYA in San Francisco. Again, it was a case where the station changed owners, and even though the general manager stayed the same, the program director changed. I was doing 10 to 2 at night at the time, and I was also in the Army Reserves. And, of course, when you're in the Army Reserves, every summer you have to go off to summer camp for a couple of weeks. During the time I was in summer camp, this was 1974, I got fired. So I returned home, and there in my box was my termination notice. I went to the general manager, and I said, okay, I want my full severance. And the general manager was very nice. Howard Kester was this clown's name. And he said, well, you know, uh, we can't give that to you because uh, you missed a live tag or some stupid made-up excuse. And I said, well, then I'm going to sue. And he said, fine, why don't you call AFTRA and sue? And I said, no, I'm not calling AFTRA. I'm calling the adjutant general's office. And he said, what? I said, no, I'm calling the United States Army. You fired me while I was on active duty. That was completely illegal, and I have the memo and the date, and that is during the period that I was serving with the United States Army. And he quickly calls his accountant, and I can hear the accountant over the phone screaming, pay him, pay him right now, pay him. So he did, and he was screaming at me as I walked out the office, just ranting, saying, You'll never work in this industry again. As it happened, I already had another job lined up in San Diego. And then he said, I know your type. You're the kind that when you get fired, likes to come back to the station, hang around the vending machine. Now, what the fuck does that mean? Well, that was the end of my tenure at KYA San Francisco. A few months later, I was at K100 in Los Angeles, and the program director there guy by the name of Bill Watson. He was really a, a man with great tact, also a man with a great intellect, because I was Beaver Cleaver on that station, as I had been on KYA and WDRQ and other stations around the country. So I was going to go on the air as Beaver Cleaver. And he was promoting me as such. And before I went on the air my first day there, Midday guy, Eric Chase, made some comment about, I wonder if Lumpy and Eddie Haskell are going to stop by too. And I'm in the office with Bill Watson, and Watson goes, what does that mean? 
Eddie Haskell, Lumpy, and I said, oh, from Leave it to Beaver. He said, what do you mean, Leave it to Beaver? What's Leave it to Beaver? I said, the television show, Leave it to Beaver. You've never heard of Leave it to Beaver? And he went, no, there's a TV show by that name? How could you be living in the United States in the 50s and 60s and not know about Leave it to Beaver? I said, yeah, well, that's where the name comes from. And he goes, oh, my God, and we've started promoting it already. I said, what's the big deal? The worst thing that could happen is they sue us, and it obviously becomes a big story and probably makes the newspapers and the evening TV news. And then we come up with a contest to rename me, and that's the end of it. Well, this was the guy who was running the radio station, certainly had his finger on the pulse of pop culture in Los Angeles. So when he decided to fire me, what he did was just call me into his office and say, listen, babe, we're making some changes, and you're one of them. I said, what do you mean you're changing my time slot? He goes, no, babe, you're out. That was it. Didn't even close the door. And that's how I left K100. Now we move forward a few years, and it is the end of 1977, I have become a TV writer. In fact, at the time, I was the head writer along with my partner, David Isaacs. We were the head writers of MASH, but I was doing every Saturday night from 6 to 10 on 10Q, KTNQ Los Angeles, top 40 radio station, again, as Beaver Cleaver, and having a real good time doing it, making after minimum. So I probably made about $35 a shift, something like that. But it was just kind of a fun thing to do on a Saturday night to still keep my hand in radio and be a disc jockey. After a year, the station changed program directors. And so the program director who was ousted called me on the phone to report that he had been canned. And he said, I don't know, man, I think they're going to be making an awful lot of changes around there. Uh, They're going to fire a bunch of people, but you should be okay because you have that mash thing to hold you over. I just looked at the phone. Oh, yeah. My God, I have that mash thing to hold me over until I get my next $35 a week job. (laughs) Unbelievable. Oh, I forgot about KSCA in San Diego. So let's go back to 1974. By this point, I'm really getting tired of radio and bouncing around the country. And I really wanted to pursue a career in TV writing. But in order to do that, I would have to go to Los Angeles and just get a job doing anything. However, I felt kind of sheepish leaving the station because this particular station was very good to me. They paid me decently. They supported my ridiculous act. So I didn't want to do anything to get myself fired. And I couldn't find Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish in any record store in San Diego. But the ratings came out and the station did not fare well, except, unfortunately, for me. I had really good numbers at night, but the rest of the station really tanked. So the numbers come out in the morning, and then we get a call that there's going to be a disc jockey meeting at 3 o'clock that afternoon. So all of the disc jockeys assembled, and the program director said, the station has decided to change formats, and they're going to go all gospel. We said, when is this? And he looked at his watch, and he goes, "Uh, it's 3.15, about 45 minutes And obviously, we were all fired. This was December 18th, and we were right in the middle of our Christmas promotion. And the promotion was 
Christmas the way it was meant to be. And of course, (laughs) we're all out of work. It turned out to be a good thing for me, however, because that allowed me to go to Los Angeles and finally pursue in earnest my dream of becoming a TV comedy writer, which I guess kind of worked out okay. So thank you, KSEA. It was Christmas the way it was meant to be. You know, most of the time, disc jockeys don't get a final show. I mean, it makes sense. What are they going to say? What happens is they finish their shift. Program director says, could you uh, pop into the office when you're done? And then you walk in and you get fired and that's it. Well, this happened to a disc jockey in Kansas City. And I don't know the year. And unfortunately, I don't know the name of the guy because this is such a great, great story. I would love to give him credit. And if you happen to know who this disc jockey was, please let me know, would you? I mean, it's kind of a legendary story. So I imagine that some of you radio people listening know of this story as well. Anyway, I think it was in Kansas City. So he's on the air. He's doing the morning show from 6 to 10. And the program director sticks his head in and said, hey, when you get off the air at 10 o'clock, will you come in and talk to me for a minute. And he said, okay. And he knew full well what that meant. So at 9.58, he's going to do his final sign-off. And he says to the audience, listen, there's something that I want to do right now. There is a song that I want to play, and management has told me they do not want this song on the air. They were very emphatic about it. In fact, they told me that if I play this record, they are probably going to fire me. But I believe so much in the message of this record that even though it may cost me my job, I am going to play this record right now. This is probably the final time you will ever hear my voice, but this means that much to me. And then he played this record. Needless to say, the station switchboard went nuts. What do you do if you're the program director now? How do you not put this guy back on the air the next morning? On the other hand, you certainly can't let this loose cannon back on your air. Well, they just had to suck it up. They fired him. And for days, for weeks, the station was getting letters, getting complaints. There were letters to the FCC. It was a giant shitstorm. Ah, the good old days of radio. You know, I think back, and it was an awful lot of fun, but also an awful lot of pressure. I can't tell you how many apartment cleaning deposits I forfeited because I got fired and had to bounce around the country and go from one place to another, at least with a podcast. I mean, nobody's paying me good money, but at least with a podcast, I can't get fired. Hollywood and Levine continues right after this. Play ball. Okay, that's my podcast without Kevin Smith. 
and you're still here, so uh, I guess I did okay. Again, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, and I'll be back again next week. My thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas, and, of course, you for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. You can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. I don't know what I'll be doing next week. Again, it won't be uh, Kevin Smith, but I'm sure there'll be some fun stuff. I'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>